So I'd like to begin the talk tonight with a story. Some of you have heard this story. So it's a story about a little boy, about eight, nine years old, who said to his mom one day, Mom, pretend that you are surrounded by a, hung, by a hundred hungry tigers. What would you do? The mother, being a conscientious kind of mother, tried to think of something edifying or educational to uh, say or some kind of, you know, response that would be helpful to her son. And not coming up with anything, she finally had to say, I don't know, what would you do? And he said, I'd stop pretending. (laughs) So this is... (laughs) This is always a good story to tell after you've been on retreat for a while. You've been sitting here with all kinds of stories going on with various degrees of uh, belief in your own imagination. Isn't it interesting how we live in these imaginary thought worlds? These stories that we tell ourselves come, how? Unbidden, seemingly out of nowhere, propelled into our mind by unseen tendencies and associations. And when we are carried away by a compelling story, it's as if we go into a trance, a very convincing trance state. One time I looked up the meaning of the word trance and I found out that it comes from the root word transir, a Latin word, meaning to depart. In a trance, we depart. We're not all here. In a trance of thinking, we have departed. We are not all here. We have lost our presence in the here and now. So you can begin to see the relevance of this for us. Suzuki Roshi wrote, when you are sitting in the middle of your problem, which is more real to you, your problem or the fact of being here? Your presence in the here and now is the ultimate fact. What is this presence that is always here? It goes by many names. The other night, Jack referred to it as the one who knows. Rumi described it as the radiant one inside of me who has never said a word. Toku Ergen calls it self-existing wakefulness. Often we use the word awareness, the wordless knowing, which is always present. We touch this wordless knowing whenever we remember something so basic and essential that most of the time we overlook it, and that is that we are here. Have you noticed? Our presence in the here and now is the ultimate fact. 
we can notice this, whatever we're doing, whether we're eating or walking or sitting or going to sleep, waking up in the morning, brushing our teeth, doing our yogi job. We have a chance, on, especially on a retreat of this length, to be curious about this, to remember over and over our present here-ness. You are here. And to begin to gently and delicately explore what is here? What is here? Is there a feeling of aliveness? Is there clarity? Is there openness? Is something needed? Is something missing? What is here? This can be a very interesting exploration. In this talk, I will ask you several times questions like this, questions that I hope will help to take you into your direct, immediate experience. When we sit down to practice at the beginning, our attention is bound. It is bound to thinking, to emotions, to sensory experience, to what is pleasant or painful, to stories, to self-images, bound to the past, bound to the future, particularly bound to the idea of me and mine. As we practice and we begin to sense or actually experience the release of grasping and resisting onto the objects, our attention is freed. Free attention is spacious, unbound. Again, Suzuki Roshi, he said, do you understand the two minds, the mind which includes everything and the mind which is related to something? This latter, we could say, is the thinking mind, the mind which fixates on objects, sensations, sounds, thoughts, attributing to them a kind of solidity and ownership, creating an illusion of duality. The fixation of the thinking mind on objects is what keeps us bound. With mindfulness, we are liberating our attention from this fixation and learning to rest more and more in the wordless space which includes everything, the wordless space of awareness. Awareness is always shining, always present, always available. Like a mirror, it perfectly reflects our moment-to-moment experience. It has no preferences, no opinions, no beliefs, no judgments. Awareness does not grasp, neither does it resist. It is not dependent on anything, on effort or time spent in meditation. It is simply always present. 
through our mindfulness, we are nurturing the recognition of awareness as our natural state. Some years ago, I had a dream which showed me these two minds. We could say the small mind and the big mind. Before going to sleep one night, I had read that Zen Master Dogen had defined practice as giving life to your original self. Giving life to your original self. Maybe it was this that sparked the dream I had. In my dream, I was in a house with an infinite number of rooms. And I knew somehow intuitively that this was the vastness of my being. But I saw that my thinking mind was only living in a few of these rooms. And I felt how when I spent too much time in my thinking mind, it diminished my sense of being. And the message that came through in the dream was to remember all the rooms of the house, was to remember the vastness of being that was available to me. There was a Thai meditation master by the name of Buddha Dasa who lived in southern Thailand. <clears throat> I had the good opportunity to meet him only once when he was, he was quite old then, but he was a great uh, teacher, writer, well-known in Thailand. All of Thailand would come to pay their respects, to visit him, and he spent his whole life really in this forest monastery living under a tree. Very simple man, very wise, very knowledgeable, great transmitter of the Dharma. So one day somebody asked Buddha Dasa, they said, Buddha Dasa, how would you describe the world? And he said three words, lost in thought. Lost in thought. Isn't it true? Here you are sitting. Can you reflect on what's going out there, going on out there in the world? To be lost in thought from the meditative perspective is to be limited in our perspective. It is one of the primary ways we get entangled in a world of concepts that takes us further and further away from the actuality of the living moment. This tendency of mind is called papancha. Many of you have heard this before. Some perhaps have not. The danger of giving a talk on this subject is that you tend to partake of the tendency of what you're speaking about. So all day today, I have felt a little caught up in thinking about thinking. I don't recommend it. (laughs) But let me give you some definitions of this word, papancha. Papancha is mental proliferation or we could say the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. 
An ancient text describes it as, quote, the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. (laughs) (laughs) So let's look at an example. The bare data of cognition might be someone walks in the room, you see them. The effusion of mental commentary erupts in your thoughts about the person. Wow, look at her. She walks so slowly. I saw her talking to Jack yesterday. Maybe she's in his teacher training program. Wow, I wish I could be in that program. I'd love to be a teacher. It looks so easy. <laughs> I think maybe I'll go to an Asian monastery, throw, throw away my job. Who needs it? I'd like to go to an Asian monastery, sit and walk. But you know, I've heard that you can easily get sick there. Gee, maybe you can't. I'm not sure if they would let me jog. I'm into this new training program, and I'm, I'm getting the results, although on this retreat I'm not keeping up my usual schedule. But you know, I really need new shoes. That's what I really need. I remember seeing an ad for some shoes just before I came, but... God, you know, I, I forgot to check my bank balance before I, before I got here on retreat. Papancha. <laughs> this is what the mind does when unnoticed. Here we have a rare opportunity to see how it works and to see it is our own production. Having very little to do with actuality. So tonight I want to talk about the four root causes that are talked about in the text. The four root causes that are behind or the hidden tendencies which bring forth our papancha. And we can notice them in our practice and that is the usefulness of this subject The four root causes are, one, tanha papancha, the proliferation and projection of greed, the greedy mind. Dosa papancha, the proliferation and projection of aversion. Ditti papancha, the proliferation of opinions and beliefs. And mana papancha, the proliferation of self-identity through our thinking. So I'll go over each of these. The first, tanha papancha. Tanha in the Pali language means unslakable thirst. Unslakable thirst. So it's not, not talking here about the kind of desires that are pretty lightweight, that come and go easily, desire for water, you, the water, you get a sip of water, it's over. But the kinds of desire that have us in their grip, tanha, papancha, leading to craving, grasping, clinging. 
In the Dhammapada, it says, the rain could turn to gold and still your thirst would not be slaked. Desire is unquenchable and ends in tears. The projection, so Papancha is the, the thinking about what it is that we want, the fantasizing, the imagining, but even more, it is the projecting onto objects and people and experiences, investing in those, our desires, our needs, our making them actually appear more desirable. In the grip of tanha, we go into a trance of thought. We can't think of anything else. And our sense of well-being is very dependent on attaining this experience or getting the particular object of our desire. So there is this quality of projecting something out, something that we need, that we imagine this object is going to fulfill. One text says that we see desirable objects as having feathers, meaning they seem particularly wonderful. You know how it is when you first fall in love. It's that kind of thing. This person is just the cat's meow. You're convinced of it. They have a lot of feathers, and you think this is going to satisfy that desire. So we want to believe that the attainment of our desire will fulfill our wildest dreams. We've all done this. And the best example, of course, on retreat, to see this at work in ourselves, shamelessly and shamefully sometimes, is the Vipassana romance, the projection onto somebody here of your fantasy, your dream, your liking, your infatuation, your fantasies of fulfillment. We all perhaps have visited this at times on retreat. Many forms of desire show themselves on retreat, the desire for the right place in the hall, the right kind of food, or the waves of longing for the perfect life, the perfect relationship, the perfect job, obsessions about what we're going to do when we get home, how we're going to describe our experience to our special friends, and all the ways we might find fulfillment in the future back in the world. Sometimes the desire comes out in our need for approval. Am I doing it right? Am I getting anywhere? Am I a good yogi? Please, I just want to be a good yogi. We want to make sure that there's something that we're attaining here. Our practice itself may become the object of our desire. We feel good about ourselves when our practice seems to be going well. We don't feel so good about ourselves when we have a bad day. We, we imagine we're not doing well. So all of this can be seen as a manifestation of this quality of thirst, of wanting, of greed in our minds. 
The mind of desire is quite noisy. It thinks a lot about what it wants and how to get it. It plans, strategize. We used to chant at the Zen Center of Los Angeles, desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Just as thinking is unending and unstoppable, so are desires. Have you noticed how they are constantly changing? They are quite fickle, actually. Maybe when we are sitting, we're making plans for where we're going to walk in the walking period. And we get out, we're walking for a little while, we can't wait to get back to the sitting. We want to become still, and when stillness begins to happen, we get nervous. We think, well, I don't know about this stillness thing. I think I better get up and go for a jog. Too much stillness makes us nervous. Have you noticed the fickleness of your desires? When you get what you want, are you happy? The little haiku by Basho, although I am in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. <laughs> it makes no sense, desire. <laughs> now, this is especially for those of you who have signed up for the eight precepts. Rumi says, those who wish to awaken consume their desires joyfully. And of course, the great koan for our consumer culture is this question, when is enough enough? When is enough enough? When do we have enough? When have we done enough? When is who we are enough? We don't have a good word in English for enough, being enough. Enough is never enough in our way of thinking. There's always room for more. So a question for you. If all of our projections of desire unto the world could be withdrawn, does the world of phenomena cease to be interesting? Do fewer desires on your part lead to boredom, passivity, lack of meaning, isolation, lack of connection? Or have you had moments or times when not wanting anything actually led to a greater sense of aliveness, discovery, even a greater sense of connection internally and externally? The Buddha said the highest form of knowing is to see everything in its suchness. John touched on this last night. To see everything in its suchness. This means to see everything without projecting desire or aversion, without identifying with anything as me or mine. This is where our practice is headed. Ryokan, the hermit, poet, monk that we all love so much, he wrote a poem, Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. 
A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountaintop fits my heart. The second kind of papancha is dosama papancha, the thinking that is driven by the aversive mind. And of course, the basic strategy of aversion is to get rid of things. So we see this on retreat as the if-only mind. If only I could get rid of the noise or the pain or the memories or the thoughts, then I would be happy. Then I would be able to sit peacefully. Out of this belief that something needs to be different, we strategize. We try to control the environment. Can we see the fantasy for what it is. The adversive mind is exquisitely attuned to what is unpleasant or what is wrong, what should not be happening. This person should not be taking all this food or this person should not be walking so fast or this person should not be walking so slow. This person should not wear clothes that make sounds. This, what kind of rules have you made for others here? I'm sure you've been busy with this. We always get into it. There was one yogi who had a lot of aversion to himself, and he kept saying to himself, I should not be breathing. I might be, I might be making too much noise for my neighbor. That was a kind of aversion towards himself. Of course, the strategy behind aversion is to order things externally so that we won't have to experience anything unpleasant. I've always said that the great uh, place in the world to go to work intensively on your aversion is India. I've been to India many times. I actually love India. I also makes me kind of crazy being in India because it defies my Western need for order and cleanliness and understanding why things are happening the way they are. So one of my, one of my, First trips to India was with a, a companion, and I, I kept asking him, why? Why don't they keep the cows out of the street? Why don't the cars stop for pedestrians? I almost got run over. Why do they play loud Hindi music at three in the morning? Why do they allow children to beg? Why do they say yes when they mean no? Why, 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 why? Why would they do it that way? I have a much better way. <laughs> that was basically what I was thinking. Until finally my companion said, Anna, don't ask me why anymore. I cannot explain India to you. But that is sort of the stance of the aversive mind. And of course on retreat as you're sitting, 
and you feel a little unpleasant sensation, perhaps it gets pretty intense, it's really hard not to begin to make up a story about what it means. Perhaps I'm, I'm falling apart here. Perhaps I'll be paralyzed for life. Perhaps I'm wounded. Perhaps, perhaps I'm getting ill. You know, they'll have to take me out on a stretcher. All these, these thoughts about what are unpleasant sensations in the body might be trying to tell us. And of course, instead, we're not asking you to be, uh, you know, stoic warriors, but to begin to understand that we can actually notice something when it is unpleasant. Like Pascal was teaching you the other night about um, the Vedana. We can actually short-circuit some of our difficulties by staying with that quality of it's just unpleasant. I don't know what it means, it's just unpleasant. Just as desire projects imaginary positive qualities, aversion can project imaginary negative scenarios onto ourselves or onto the world. I often tell this story about sitting one of my first three-month courses at IMS and it was I was just beginning to get a handle on some calmness, some peace, some really pleasant experience in my meditation. So, of course, I felt like I was making huge progress. I was sitting in the hall. It was in between the formal sittings. I was just loving being in the hall, and I was sitting happily. And suddenly, in the back of the hall, I hear this somebody coming in, and then this big crash, bang throwing. I just couldn't imagine what was going on, but I was peaceful. I was happy. I was having no problem. I was just sitting there. But after a while, I just got really curious to see what was going on. So I turned around and much to my amazement, I saw this person, a new arrival who was in the back of the hall with these building blocks, like building himself a little hut (laughs) in the back of the hall. You know, he was probably an aversive type trying to find a way to be comfortable. and Well, I just, all my aversion came up and I had big stories about who, why would he be doing that and how he was destroying my chance at peace and on and on and on. And for days after that, even the mere sight of him when he wasn't doing anything disruptive, you know, all my aversion would come up. So we learn through these difficult experiences. So I'm sure that Pascal probably went into this with you, how we can avert the tendency of mind to go on and on into a storm of papancha by learning how it is that papancha arises. And in our practice, we have the opportunity to see what happens when the ear hears a sound, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, or we taste something, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We see, we have a thought, pleasant or unpleasant. At that moment of contact, that is called contact, a feeling tone arises. 
And what we feel, we perceive. We feel something unpleasant. We perceive aversion. And we think about it. We feel, we perceive, we think about. This is how the process of papancha gets activated in us. In the Sutta Nipata, it says, for some people, the moment of contact, the point where sense plus object meet, that moment of contact is enthralling. And so they are wasted by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand this sense activity, and because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their grasping ends. They realize the total calm. The third kind of papancha is called ditti papancha, and this is the activity of mind which forms views and opinions and believes them to be true. The mind which wants to know, to have a firm position, to stand on, the mind which needs to be right. One of my favorite cartoons is a a husband and wife having some kind of argument. The wife is sitting on the sofa with her arms like this and the man is standing up wildly gesturing and he's saying to her, well, if it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? (laughs) We like to be right don't we? Maybe it gives us a feeling of having a ground under us that feels secure. We can notice that having opinions, feeling right, is a way of feeling safe, of feeling secure. But in meditation, of course, we're not looking for the right doctrine to believe in, but rather a way of seeing and a way of being which is more open-minded, tolerant, clear-seeing, trusting of our capacity to know what is true, but not in a dogmatic way. The Sixth Zen Patriarch said, do not seek for the truth, only cease to cherish your opinions. For years I struggled with this one, especially in the life of Spirit Rock, being involved with a community of people, going to a lot of meetings, having to make a lot of decisions. You get quite into this whole world of opinions and beliefs. Until finally one day I discovered the great refuge of not knowing. I discovered not knowing not as a place of shame or failure, but as the truth. When we cease to cherish our opinions, we actually come closer to the truth of things. And I had a teacher who taught me to explore the actual experience of, I don't know. And I discovered, as I said, not knowing as a refuge, it's okay not to know. I don't know. And what's more, I don't need to know. 
the living experience of not knowing is actually quite fine, quite restful, quite alive. Right now, is there anything you need to know? Is your well-being dependent on knowing something that is not present? I don't think so. Explore it for yourself. Take not knowing breaks during the day. If you see yourself getting caught up and trying to figure something out, just, ah, I don't know. See what that's like. See if there's a aliveness there. Is there openness there? Is there some kind of freedom there? Meditation increases our tolerance for not knowing, for allowing not knowing to be foreground in our experience. The last kind of papancha that we can notice in our practice is called mana papancha, and that is the thinking which takes itself to be me and mine. The thinking that you relate to as, yes, this is who I am. Yeah, it seems so obvious. Yeah, that's me. We call it selfing, the process of creating a self-image out of our thoughts and emotions and believing it to be true. We sit and we tell ourselves the story of our lives. And we don't do it just once, do we? (laughs) Have you noticed? We tend to repeat the same story over and over again. And I've always found a very interesting moment when I wake up in the morning. When you awaken in the morning and you're just coming back into this world, coming into consciousness, and there's just perhaps a peaceful feeling or... Just this kind of openness, and then suddenly the story begins. You remember your story, and suddenly you are gripped. You're back in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm at Spirit Rock. I'm in the middle of this retreat. I'm having a really hard time, and I I don't know what I'm going to do today, but I hope it's better than yesterday. I mean, whatever the story. Maybe it's a happier story. But some kind of story just rushes in and grabs you. It's so interesting to see that moment when we wake up in the morning. What we discover eventually, if we keep looking at this tendency to create this self, what we call selfing, is no matter whether we are praising ourselves or feeling really good about ourselves or whether we are beating up on ourselves or whether we are feeling like a victim of our experience or whether we're feeling like we're triumphing in some way, it's all misery. It's all miserable, however we hold it. It's misery when we believe our conclusions about ourselves, good or bad. What conclusion about yourself have you drawn today? Is it the same conclusion as yesterday or a completely different one? They will change over time. 
It was a Tibetan woman many centuries ago. Her name was Machi Glatron. And she was visited by Tara to give her some encouragement. Machi could not believe she was worthy of Tara's attention. She said, I don't know why you have come to me. I am just a poor and stupid woman. The story goes that Tara turned her full gaze upon Machig and said, Let me tell you who you are. Let me tell you who you are. Showing Machig her true nature. And of course, as in all stories, Machig then went on to uh, awaken and become a great practitioner and a great teacher. It's a lovely story because it shows the possibility of what happens in our practice. In our practice, we are shown quite directly that our self-images are just that, constructed images made out of thought, made out of our assumptions and beliefs about things that have been told to us in the past or experiences we have had in the past. And instead our practice begins to inform us about other qualities of being which begin to awaken in us qualities of wisdom, clarity, openness, the ability to know the truth, to see with clear eyes, qualities of compassion, love and kindness and connection and empathy. All of these begin to flower in us, whether we want them to or not. If we stay with this practice, we begin to sense the 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 abundance of other qualities of our being which are available, which begin to grow in us and flower. And we see that our biggest obstacle in many ways is this self-image that we keep insisting on that this is me. Whether it's a deficient self-image or a grandiose self-image, doesn't matter we will bump up against it. Over time, our practice gives us more and more evidence that all of our self-images constructed from thought and emotion are anicca, are dukkha, are anatta, impermanent, not us, not me, not mine, suffering when we believe them. Our practice allows us to begin to release them And our practice is the mirror which shows us indeed who we truly are. In the Avatamsaka Sutta, it says, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. So the four kinds of papancha, tanha pancha, dosa papancha, ditti papancha, and mana, mana papancha, 
Begin to see in your practice if you can identify where your thinking is coming from. What is fueling the papancha? What moment, what incident began the journey into thinking? This can be a very interesting investigation because it's clear that our goal is not to rid ourselves of our thinking, but to see that we can make thinking itself an object of our mindfulness. When we do that, we begin to sense the process of thinking. As Eugene was mentioning the other day, we can see that all thought, the greatest thoughts, the worst thoughts, all are fleeting, transparent, insubstantial. What are they? What is a thought? We've never even seen a thought, and yet it seems to have such power when we believe it. We can begin to see what is fueling our identification with our thoughts and how this is a kind of suffering. In investigating our thinking, it begins to lose its power to deceive us. Thinking or thought cannot take us to ultimate truth. It cannot do this. I like something Achanamaro says about this. He says, this attempt is like trying to drink water from the word cup. It cannot be done. Rather, this... Belief in words, in concepts, in thinking takes us further and further away from realizing the truth. In the Prajnaparamita Sutta, there is a dialogue between Subhuti and the Buddha. Subhuti asked the Buddha, he said, Is perfect wisdom beyond thinking? The Buddha replied, <clears throat> Yes, Sabuti, it is exactly so. And why is perfect wisdom beyond thinking? It is because all its points of reference cannot be thought about, but can be apprehended or known. One is the disappearance of the self-conscious person into pure presence. Another is the simple awakening to reality. Another is the knowing of the essenceless essence of all things. And another is luminous knowledge that knows without a knower. None of these points can sustain ordinary thought because they are not objects or subjects. They can't be imagined or touched, or approached in any way by any ordinary mode of consciousness. Therefore, they are beyond thinking. So I'd like to invite you to make yourself comfortable for a moment. Find a comfortable sitting posture, close your eyes, 
and hold this particular sentence in your mind. The sentence is a simple one. I am, fill in your name, I would say, I am Anna sitting here. I am, fill in your name, sitting here. And feel the simple truth of that. Now take away the word here. I am sitting. Now take away the word sitting. I am your name. Now take away your name. I am. Now drop am. I. And now drop I. Has anything been lost? Has anything been gained? The great mystery of our being, when we look inside, we can't really find ourselves, nor can we get rid of ourselves. We are here, the ultimate fact. Thank you for your attention and your practice.